Hey, what's going on? Welcome to the Raptors Reasonless Podcast. I'm your host, Blake Murphy. Joining me, as usual, Eric Crane. Eric, you you failed us in Game Seven. You flopped. You didn't you didn't get it done, man. Uh, that's totally fair. I did not come with it. I did not come with the uh, requisite energy and uh, want to and grit. And uh, now our season's done. I'm yep. sorry. You didn't bring the ruckus appropriately. Um, nor nor defunct. Yeah. How you doing? I'm okay. It's, uh, as we record on Sunday morning, it's a bit of a gray day, gloomy. It, it seems appropriate for sort of wrapping things up on, on the 2019-2020 Toronto Raptors. Sure uh, would but, be. Uh, a... But it's, it's hard to feel high energy uh, in, in this... Uh, in this climate, in this setting, in this well, scenario. Look, it's a perfect day outside to sit around and watch uh, Jamal Murray force a Game 7 with the Clippers, to watch Alejandro Kirk hit some 700-foot foul balls. To <laughs> Did you did you watch any of the Jays game yesterday? I just saw the end, but I, I did come home to see your uh, tweets about Alejandro Kirk. Oh, what a perfect baseball prospect. <laughs> Amazing. Um, we're coming out of a series where player thickness determined a lot. So uh, Alejandro Kirk has been a nice transition. We, like, we had Grant Williams play seven huge minutes in a closeout of a Game 7. And we had the series of, you know, Kyle Lowry's life since... I mean, maybe, maybe the series of Kyle Lowry's life. So um, being able to pivot right into Alejandro Kirk was appreciated. And Eric, you, um, I want to give you this space to annoy people off the top by talking about your fantasy football team. Um, I don't think they're going to be good. Uh, so, so my fantasy football team is named Not Mike Corrine. I, I, I might have described this uh, or, or detailed this last year. Um it's called not Mike Corrine. Mike is my brother, uh, who was in our pool for one year and did not like participate in any meaningful way uh, once he drafted. Um, so that became my team name. But my team name, my team last year was so bad that midseason I changed my name to not Eric Corrine, um, which is obviously hilarious. Uh, I'm stacked at receiver. I've got Michael Thomas, Adam Thielen, Michael Gallup, and, and Josh Brown starting today. Uh, but we've got some problems elsewhere on the roster. But fantasy football is dumb and stupid. Um, so there will be injuries, and somebody will be flukily great, and somebody will be terrible. Uh, and I'll probably finish like 4-9. and nine. That's my prediction. Yeah. Well, things aren't looking good for Sound the Alarmstead either. Uh, although Jack Armstrong told me he's optimistic about Bill's running back, Zach Moss. So, so is my brother. I was with my brother on a uh, patio last night and he said, uh, he's hearing that he might get a lot of the, the goal line touches because, uh, their other running back Singletary is, uh, is a bit fumbly. He's got a case of the fumbles sometimes. Fumbleitis. So, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, so that could be good for you because touchdowns are worth a lot in 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 football and in fantasy football. Yeah, I was uh, trying to pivot back to basketball there with the Jack Armstrong comment, but 
you know, go go off, Mike Green. Um, <laughs> we are going to talk about the Toronto Raptors today. Uh, Jack Armstrong, shout out to him and Matt Devlin. Also, if you're listening and you didn't get a chance, um, I did. I think it's it kind of holds up outside of the time that I wrote it in. Um, those gentlemen let me sit in on a broadcast for game four against the Nets. And I wrote about what a broadcast is like uh, during a pandemic remotely from this truck studio in Oakville. Uh, and also what makes them tick, uh, Matt Devlin and Jack Armstrong, who are both former guests of the podcast. So uh, go check that out. If you are not a subscriber at The Athletic right now, you can get it for one twenty-five a month uh, Canadian, which seems crazy but we're celebrating having 1 million subscribers so uh get after that and then as always uh if you missed that window 40 percent off at theathletic.com slash we the six lots of great playoff stuff uh i don't want to pat myself on the back but eric did a great job jay king and jared weiss on the Celtics side were awesome um it was you know i'm very very happy with uh the coverage we ended up providing for that series uh, sam amick from inside the bubble uh, michael lee chipping in on the national side seth part now uh, as well on the analytics side so um lot to digest if you're still like kind of... like you did a great job thanks man yeah a uh, lot to go through on the written side if you're still kind of uh digesting the season and decompressing from it this is this podcast and the article that I had go up on Sunday called Six Lessons the Raptors Can Take Forward from Boston as they continue building uh, are kind of the closing of the book on the 2019-2020 season. Uh, Eric, you have report cards coming out Monday. Uh, so the Raptors, um, you know, make sure you hide those from your parents in some cases. Yes. Uh, make sure you magnet them to the fridge in other cases. Yeah, Kyle Lowry can put it on his fridge. Yeah, right next to uh, some of Carter's artwork, I'm sure. Uh, So what I'm trying to tee up is that this podcast today will be the kind of end of one chapter and then we we start another later in the week. So I don't mean that in like some big grand uh, existential way. I mean, quite literally, this is our end of 2019-2020 podcast and our next podcast will start teeing up the off season. So uh, at the risk of you turning this off, if you don't want to hear any more about the season that was and the Raptors seven game loss to the Boston Celtics, uh, that's what you're getting today. And then we'll talk off season stuff on the next episode of the podcast. And we will begin our kind of off season look ahead content Monday on the written side of The Athletic. Eric, the Toronto Raptors had an awesome series against the Boston Celtics. I don't mean necessarily the Raptors played awesome, but I mean it was a seven-gamer between two very evenly matched teams with five very, very good, very, very tense games. Uh, Game seven went down to the final moments. It is an all-timer of a series. Before we get into uh, the specifics for the Raptors and what we could take away from it, uh, the Celtics won Game 7, 92-87. So they're moving on to play the Miami Heat in the Eastern Conference Finals. The Raptors are done. Eric, we tried to contextualize throughout the course of the series some of the bigger things like um, that Game 6 win or OG Ananobi's uh, game winner in Game 3, uh, the Game 6 win being the one that went to double overtime. In terms of overall series... Where do you think this one is going to uh, hold up when we look back at, you know, 
the this seven year era so far, and also if you want to throw the old Raptors Philly series in from from the Vince era or the Knicks series, um, this is this is now the regular podcast feature where I make you contextualize things that just happened over a twenty five year history. Well, I like that I'm the resident historian. Uh, I guess uh, you are significantly th- older. The Marcus Gasol to my Kyle Lowry. And I guess in 2001, you weren't that into basketball. That's uh, correct. Would, would be the argument. Um, it holds a, a, like in terms of quality of play, I, I don't know. I think like we all sort of, after these things end and there's some distance, we, like our, our sun, our glasses get, uh, what's a, what's the, you know, rose shaded glasses, pink yeah. shaded glasses. Um, and, but I think it holds a different place than sort of any other series for the Raptors because, I mean, just because it was a title defense and there's nothing, not that this Raptors team doesn't have a future because obviously they do, but it, it does feel like a version of this is over and whichever team comes back next year, uh, it's not going to be the same championship core. Like even though, you know, four or five of those seven guys, maybe even six of those seven guys might be back. Like it's certainly we're pivoting toward a lot of change, you know, as soon as this summer, but definitely after next season. Um, So I think it feels spiritually different than that. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, it's one of, I'm trying to compare it to the Raptors Sixers series, but there was such hope after that, uh, Raptors Sixers series about the Vince Carter era Raptors. It's like, it felt like a necessary loss on the way to something bigger when that ended. Uh, Of course it wasn't that, but that's, (laughs) so that's what it felt like. Uh, not the peak of, of an era. Um, so I think this goes down as like, and I tried to write it after the game as like, you know, the noble conclusion to a kind of, to a very specific era of this team. And, you know, I still think, you know, Kyle Lowry and Pascal Siakam and OGN and OB are, are all going to be back next year, I, I would anticipate. Um, so it's not like that's going to be unrecognizable, but, uh, but yeah, that, that's sort of how I see it. And just in terms of, of the series itself, like, I think it will be right up there as, you know, with the Philly, both Philly series probably as the most competitive series the Raptors have ever played. Um, you know, uh, there were blowouts in, in both of those Philly series, there were blowouts in this series, uh. Tough to argue in this one that the wrong team won based on the the run of play, as they say in soccer. But, uh, um, you know, the way the Raptors fought and, and figured out a way to give themselves a chance until pretty much the last possession or, or the second last possession, it's, uh, I don't think people will or should forget that. I'm with you, man. It was wonderful. Um, I guess now... We are both uh, wrestling fans. What you see sometimes after a battle or a feud like this is you get the handshake 
and the begrudging respect earned between the two sides. Do you think it goes that way for the Raptors and Celtics, or are we, you know, is this just uh, act two in uh, what's going to be a longer rivalry? And I guess both of those things can be true. Obviously, um, you know, that, that moment where Kyle Lowry and Marcus Smart helped each other up off the floor is like a clear passing of the grifting torch. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, I mean, this is look. Obviously, Brooklyn's on the Brooklyn can be anticipated to be better next year. Um, Milwaukee has some questions to answer. Philly, who who knows yeah. with Philly, but like Toronto and Boston probably project as two of the top five teams or so in the East for the foreseeable future, barring some you know major changes uh, in the East landscape. Is this, uh, you know, we wanted this series to turn this pseudo-rivalry into a real rivalry for so long. Uh, where do we go from here with Raptors-Celtics? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of it depends on the Raptors' trajectory, right? Like, with the Celtics, you know, uh, you think that Brown and Tatum are going to be there for a while, and it's hard to imagine a team with those two guys uh, isn't going to be pretty damn good year in and year out. Uh, with the Raptors, there's a little more uncertainty, uh, I would say. I think that's fair. Um, but there's there doesn't appear to be any eye on, you know, tearing this down unless, you know, you're totally anti-Siakam after this series that you're just like, trade everybody, burn it to the ground, uh, which I don't think, you know, certainly this current Raptors front office isn't... Uh, isn't in that mindset i would i would heavily hypothesize can you you think of a recent example where not blowing it up and staying good and competitive and keeping a strong asset base uh just in case the the landscape of the league changed paid off for uh, a toronto raptors team no my mind only goes back uh 15 months so should have tanked for wiggins (laughs) yeah (laughs) Uh, they almost did, guys. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, so I, 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 so I think it's likely that these two teams will meet again. Of course, it was likely that these two teams would have met before this series. So, so who knows how the playoff, uh, the playoff pictures end up uh, congealing in future years. Uh, I, I would just say there's more. Even if the Raptors keep it relatively together, which I think they will, there's more uncertainty about how they build that ceiling to get, you know, they they raise that ceiling, especially as Lowry gets older, if he ever gets older. Um, But there were always those questions with the old Raptors teams, and they figured out a way to, you know, be in the the 50-win territory or higher for years and years and years and eventually won a title. So, uh yeah, I think the chances are this is not the first and last chapter. Uh, but uh, Marcus Smart memeing about being the king of the north certainly isn't going to endear him to Raptors fans. So maybe that handshake might be on the court, but certainly fans can ste- can keep on, uh, and they certainly have, can keep on just being jerks to each other online. Here's the thing with that post. Marcus Smart, no no offense, man. You had a very good series. You earned the right to dunk on social media. Paul Pierce made that joke like six years ago on a flip phone. Like, just, it's, the that one in particular is played out. Like, like Paul Pierce doesn't even know how to use the phone. 
and he <laughs> did that already. So you could have done something a little a little better, especially yeah, since like none of the games were actually in the north. Like you did not come to the north and conquer. Anyway, it's I, I don't really care about the the posting. It's more. The you creativity. Know, the, you you want them to bring yeah. the fire, and that was not the yeah, fire. Yeah, look, this whole series, Raptors Twitter against Celtics Twitter, was about posting with honor and leaving it all on the posting field. And I feel like Marcus Smart undercut that a little bit by repurposing, you know, Paul Pierce's medieval time fucking King of the North post. Yeah, like, and Pierce's was way better because he... I mean, he was obviously in Toronto's head in in a large way after that uh, after that Wizard series. And you know, I'll do respect to Marcus Smart, who did have an awesome series and is a big reason the Celtics are advancing. He is not like the enduring image of that series to me. The enduring image is Jason Tatum pump faking like a as somebody flies by him, him taking the slowest dribble ever to the left and hitting a three-pointer again and again and again. Uh, so Sure is good he, at that sidestep three, eh? Yeah, and it just looks so relaxed, too. Um, uh, it's, it's like a more... I mean, OG Adenobi does that, too, but it's there's just like more rhythm. It's just a prettier shot, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, a prettier stroke. Uh, maybe, but he's he's good, man. Uh, you got to give it up to that dude because he he was about the only guy who really had it going in Game Seven. So that, as we previewed this series, and, and as we talked about back to like deep early in the hiatus, um, Jared Weiss and I kind of went through a Tatum versus Siakam versus Ben Simmons uh, roundtable exercise, and they were close. They had almost identical true shooting percentages, and uh, uh, usage rates before the hiatus. We had agreed that Tatum was ahead, but we thought it was close and the playoffs could, you know, maybe force a change in rankings. Uh, they did not. Uh, the reseeding games and the playoffs showed that Tatum is a little further ahead, at least, um, and is uh, like 18 years younger, uh, as you hear <laughs> Celtics fans remind you. Tatum only 22. So, it's reductive, of course, to say the team that has the best player in the series will win, etc. But that, you know, that did have a, an impact here where Tatum was able to consistently outplay Siakam. And Tatum was the most reliable individual in the series other than maybe Kyle Lowry, who just, you know, I don't know that Lowry, as great as he is, should be relied on for 25-30 every night. So... Obviously, there's been a lot of talk around Siakam. Some of it has been kind of toxic online, but let's not give oxygen to that kind of stuff. Um, but some of it has also just been like less reasonable from reasonable people. And Siakam was in his fourth season. It's his first season in this role. He's 26. It's not. This was not the the referendum season for Pascal Siakam. His max extension doesn't even kick in until next year. Having said all of that. He averaged 14.9 points in the series, shot 38.2% overall, 12.5% on threes, only got to the line three times a game, and while he dished 3.3 assists per game, he also had 2.1 turnovers. Uh, the Raptors were better with him on the floor thanks to his defense and the fact that he played most of his minutes with Kyle Lowry, who I swear this could be the apocalypse and Kyle Lowry would be driving positive minutes against the four horsemen. Um, <laughs> it's uh, Anyway... 
Siakam did not have a good series, and it's been the talk. And obviously, it's you know, it's the thing you and I wrote about the most during the hiatus, and the most entering the series, and the most during the series, because Siakam's progress, at least until they're able to use some trade assets or their 2021 cap flexibility to bring in someone else, you know, Siakam's <laughs> growth is going to turn is going to determine their ceiling. Uh, so, where are you at with Pascal coming out of this series? Because it was. As much as we could be reasonable and optimistic about the long term, it was quite bad. Yeah, it was a bad. Sorry, quite quite bad on the scoring front. Yeah, uh, the offensive front, I I think you could probably say all around. Um, Although turnovers weren't a huge issue. Just uh, in Game 7, really. Until Game 7, he was, I think, at 20 to 10 assists to turnovers uh, through six games. Yeah, and Uh, and the ones in Game 7 were so, like... I, I highlighted some things in my final Raptor recalibration about like things that just happen when you've played a team seven times in a row. Like I think part of Tatum's comfort with that sidestep three was just that after you see the Raptors aggressive closeouts for seven games, like you kind of are ready yeah. for it. And a couple of Siakam's turnovers were the like, Hey, the action doesn't go anywhere. Siakam's in the corner and you just know he's going to swing it back up to the top. And the swings just weren't like, they weren't purposeful enough, yeah. and Boston was just sitting on them. And Tatum had a really great play in game one or game two where he, like, blew up one of the Raptors' pistol actions on the side of the floor in a really similar way. And it's just, like, not that, obviously, Nick Nurse is a very good coach and the Raptors are a very smart team, but Boston was just, like, super well-prepared for just about any of the Raptors' tendencies. And, and so I thought that those turnovers, outside of frustration turnovers, were also kind of tendency turnovers uh, anyway, sorry, I derailed your point. Um, you had a bad series. And, you know, not to get all cliche, but the measure of a uh, you know, human is, isn't if they fall, it's how they respond when they do. So, uh, which I think you very eloquently wrote about after the game on Friday. And there are concerns. I mean, the concerns were getting pretty obvious before we got to the series as you know I, I think Nick Nurse didn't want to really acknowledge them publicly for, because like why pile on your player publicly like it, it's not productive from from a coach's standpoint I know sometimes fans and and observers just want to hear people state the truth uh, and, and uh, you know, confirm what they're seeing. But a coach has a lot of jobs, and some of those are like keep trying to keep your you know the conversation around a player away from just being negative uh, to the extent that they can, and just show support. Unless uh, you're a bench guy, then you get called out, and uh, then yeah. you're expected to put up twenty the game after you get called out. Uh, and you just do put up twenty. Yeah. So so it's fine. Um, but. You could see how the, his three point, uh, his three pointer just left him. Uh, you know, especially. I mean, he was awful from three the, all series, but his sort of he just didn't know where his shots were off his own dribble if he was staying on the perimeter. Like they seemed to disappear, and I think that's probably largely a confidence thing. Uh, his handle looked pretty bad in the bubble. Uh, all bubble, you know, all restart long. And that was, again, the case against Boston, who has a bunch of defenders who, you know, would expose that. <laughs> like, that, that sort of was the worry that he would have 
trouble driving. Um, and then in terms of his posting up, like you saw how important upper body strength is, I think. Like, um, or, or I should just say general strength. Like yeah, there was, I was going to say, the, yeah, the yeah. strength through the lower half. Yeah, yeah, is, yeah. Uh, I, 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 I'm restating. Just strength in general because... Eric Green uh, skips leg day confirmed yeah. on the podcast. Yeah, well, we are entering like month eleven of my calf calf injury. So, uh, um, but yeah, like he would either get pushed out as he was backing down in the post, or as he was going up, he wouldn't be able to get his balance because there was a body on him, whether it was Smart or or um, Jalen Brown who. We've got to give credit to here. He did a oh. awesome, awesome job on him all series. Uh, he was the primary defender. You got like that's a huge reason why the Celtics are moving on. And uh, he had some fans on this podcast before this series, so uh, <laughs> pro- props to Jalen. Um, so I think I mean it's a pretty clear trajectory in terms of what he needs to work on this this summer uh, or this off season. It is almost no longer summer. Um, he needs to get stronger and he needs to work on his handle. And uh, I mean, working on your handle, really, it's a tool to get your playmaking more involved. And the Raptor, that's what the Raptors needed. They needed more guys to make plays either for themselves or for others to get into the middle of that defense um, as tough as that was. And it seemed like the only guy who could do that series, uh, do that this series was Kyle Lowry uh, sometimes. And they needed Siakam to be that second guy, and he wasn't. Am I giving up on him? No, but that was a really bad series, and he's going to have to respond to it. Yeah, he sure is. And this is where, you know, you think back to Kyle Lowry gave me this terrific quote about, I asked Kyle after the game, you know, I basically was like, hey, you and DeMar went through this in 2015 with the wizard sweep, even early in that 2016 run, you know, there were all those graphics of Lowry and DeMar being like the worst field goal percentage ever in the playoffs and stuff. Um, So I asked Kyle, like, how do you, how do you channel what you went through into like how you're being a leader for Siakam uh, now as Siakam goes through it? And Lowry, on top of basically warning me not to write anything bad about Siakam, uh, uh, had a good defense for him. And I'm gonna read, um, I'm gonna read the quote here if I can find it. Yeah. So uh, forgive me. This is a longer quote, but this is what Lowry said. When we got swept by the Wizards, I read every single article. I read every single thing that was said about me. Good, bad, evil, terrible, awesome. And I used it as motivation. And that's what he's going to do. That's the advice that I'm going to give him, which is that you look at everything, you look at all these moments, and you see who's saying what, because you're going to use it as fuel. Fuel fuel yourself. And that's what he's going to do. Um, And then he said, uh, toward the end of that quote, and I would not be surprised to see him come back even more hungry and destroying people. Uh, Which, as soon as Kyle uh, said that, I was like, well, thank you for writing my postgame story for me. That's an awesome quote. Um, But that's kind of it, is... It's it's not just Kyle and DeMar who went through this. It's, you know, Kobe Bryant had this 
historic playoff failure as a 19 year old you know vince carter maybe never got vince carter didn't get to the level of like carrying a play a team to the final to the championship but he had this like very public you know his in his case it was an awesome series against the 76ers but they still came up short and you look around the league but and, even before the like we should say before that their first series against yeah. the knicks they got swept in three games he was pretty bad tracy mcgrady was better than him in that series um, so he's not immune, certainly. Yeah, and this is things that players go through. And, and, you know, you look at what the 76ers are going through. You look at what the Bucks are going through. And, and their stars have been a little better individually. But only one team gets to win. And, you know, look at James Harden. James Harden's still figuring out how to play in the playoffs. Um, uh, yeah, sure is. Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's a... A yeah, roster a spe- construction uh, issue as uh, much as ever. special case, but, yes. Yeah. But like, I think your point it, is that... Like, what, s- sorry, go on. I was just going to say, interesting to see what Mike D'Antoni does with the 76ers next year. Anyway. Yeah. Um, but Tatum and his playoff career arc, uh, you know, discounting last year, which, uh, again, a roster construction thing, like, he's the exception, pretty much. He's not the yeah. rule. Like, he, the fact that Tatum was brilliant in his rookie season and, and has been brilliant in his third season in the playoffs as a, you know, one or one, a guy that generally does not happen. Yeah. And the other thing to keep in mind too, is we spent this entire season kind of glorifying that the Raptors had this incredible ability to shut opposing team stars down. And they ran into a defense that was just as good as theirs that shut their star down. Like, this is, I know it's not as simple as that. And Siakam's decision-making and the, the way he posted up and his handle, like, there there are a ton of factors to be discouraged by Siakam's performance. But there's also a layer of, you ran into one of maybe only two defenses in the league that can claim to be as good as yours. And they did to you what you've done to other teams all season long. Like, look at the series that Kemba Walker had. That's That's not a... Kemba Walker can't play in the playoff series. That's a the Raptors schemed out Kemba Walker and made Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown beat them more. Yeah. Um, so, you know, especially on a team where, like, the Raptors just don't have a lot of guys who can create their own shot outside of Siakam and Lowry, you know, that's a pretty good strategy to send a second body at Siakam pretty much all the time and make him make those decisions that he's not elite at yet and make him you know, get him uncomfortable with the post-up with someone sitting on his spin move kind of in his hands and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't a good series, but there's still plenty of room for yeah, growth. And and I, I, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think back to, like, this is the most me comment, but, like, Pascal Siakam got demoted from being a starter as a rookie to the G League. And, like, how he responded to that leads me that in, that encourages me about how he might respond to this because he did start his first 37 or whatever NBA games and then wasn't playing at all and then got you know I don't like the term demoted to the D league because it's more about development and reps and stuff but the players sometimes take it as a demotion and you know he responded to that well it wasn't quite Roy Halladay with the 1064 ERA going back down rebuilding himself into a hall of famer but you know, he has responded well to adversity in the past. So I think if you're looking for reasons for optimism that he could turn this into a learning and growth experience, you know, he's done that a couple times already. Yeah, and I think the only point I 
I would add is that I know a lot of people bring up the age thing. Uh, what is he, 26? 26. Um, as a reason why this is all he is. And, and like, make no mistake, he might not get better than this. I, I would bet that he will, but it's possible that he won't. You never know how any career will go. But when you think of how new he is to the game relative, like, you know, his body of work is much like he was 22, not 26, um, just based on when he started playing the game. Um, so let's give the guy time to develop. Uh, and, you know, I really liked Lowry's comment, but frankly, I think Siakam is is certainly smart enough to realize what happened. A lot of it was on him and his whole history shows that he's, you know, a really great worker and uh, is really internally motivated and, and driven to be the best player that he can be. And I don't think he's going to need to, you know, go through all of our hot takes on the athletic.com 125 uh, per month, Pascal, uh, if you, if you do need that, uh, maybe we could comp him, but I, I, we think <laughs> he can, his, his extensions kick again. He should be fine. Um, yeah, but, but, uh, I, I think, you know, he's a player who's going to get the most out of who he can be. And, you know, not, none of us are, are smart enough to say what that will wind up being, but, you know, he's going to go to work. So uh, that's fine. Before we get on to more big pictures uh, stuff, I think, maybe, sorry, I'm, I'm momentarily taking hosting duties away from you. Do it. Um, small, like, you know, micro stuff in game seven. I know a lot of people were pretty critical of Nick Nurse's decisions in that game. Uh, I, I guess... There were a few things, uh, mostly the, 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 you know, the one hottest one online was Siakam should have been taken out, uh, but also Morabaka, I think. Uh, was there anything in that game you saw that you really didn't like from Nick Nurse? I mean, there were a couple little things. Like, I thought when, when Van Vliet got that three blocked and you're down three, like, if you're not going to use Matt Thomas in a down three situation like I know they didn't use a timeout but I also thought once nothing materialized in transition they maybe should have um there was another like they didn't put bigs back on the floor for the defensive rebound when Grant Williams who's not a great free throw shooter was at the line um little stuff like that but my my bigger thing is I thought Nurse had a great defensive series you know the the bigger questions about how that series was coached are things that like you can't answer over the course of one game, it's like the big thing, the big two things to me are, you know, what does he have to do about the half court offense to, to like, like, why are the, how do I frame this? I know he likes the offense to be improvisational and he doesn't want to over script, but the offense was much better when he had his hands on the, <laughs> what he scripted. Bit. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing is, you know, what, what would the depth guys have to have shown you differently for you to use them at some point over the course of that series? Because I don't want to chalk it all up to fatigue, but the fact that, like, you know, part of this Well, he did. He did partly. Like, he, yeah. he said the turnovers were largely the product of fatigue. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, and I don't think that 
that's what like the 18 turnovers in game or whatever it was in game seven isn't what you're talking about necessarily it was a struggle to score all series long um yeah. but part of that you know is that <laughs> what fred van vliet took that shot that came two or three feet short like that was his 96th minute over the last uh, two games, which, uh, if you're keeping track, is two full regulation games, <laughs> uh, thanks to the double overtime, of course. Sorry, continue. Oh, yeah. It's, and so, yeah, my, my questions, I guess, are, you know, how do you tweak the half-court offensive system to maintain those motion and improvisational elements that Nick Nurse believes in, um, but also you know, put guys in positions to, to succeed a little better. And then how do you how do you approach next season and how you use the bench and how you use your depth to where you'll have more faith in them in a playoff series? Because, you know, I'm not saying that Terrence Davis should have played 20 minutes a game or, or anything like that. Um, I will say, you know, Paul Watson probably should have played 20 minutes a game. Get that free throw rate up. Uh, no, in seriousness, like, like, what more would these bench guys have had to show Nick Nurse to um, to warrant playoff playing time? And this isn't a question uh, or even a criticism of Nurse specifically. It's about how we evaluate an 82 or 72 game season to where, you know, the Bucks ran into it, too. The the Rockets ran into it, too. It's it's you were the Bucks were a depth team during the course of the season playing Giannis only 30 minutes a game. And with this these four and five man bench units that were successful and we, everyone knows that the depth doesn't matter as much in the playoffs because they'll play less and you'll rely on your stars more. But how do we, how do we approach the idea of depth over seventy-two or eighty-two that translates to depth over? Yeah, exactly. 16? Is it just functional to get your your way through an eighty-two game grind or whatever, or is there something that carries over for you know guys eight through ten? Uh, and how do you make that carry over in a way that isn't, okay, today I'm going to give Matt Thomas three minutes, today I'm going to give Terrence Davis three minutes, today I'm going to give Chris Boucher three minutes, and we'll see if anything sticks. Um, because, like, while it's fair to assume that Terrence Davis won't be in the same role, like, he... And again, this isn't so much a criticism as, as like, you. It's like a question, an open question. It's like he it's was a philosophical. A, yeah, yeah, he was a big part of what they did all season, and he had basically no role in this series, and that's it's just it's odd. So how do you reconcile that? Yeah. So both of these things are not criticisms of Nurse necessarily, who again deserved Coach of the Year, and I thought had a really good defensive series. Uh, the way that they bottled up Kemba and frustrated him, and um, you know, I thought I thought. This is not like Nick Nurse had a bad series. We need to rethink of Nick Nurse's coach of the year. It's, you know, as the Raptors go back to the drawing board and as they imagine things like their player development system and what their half-court offense looks like, these are questions. And and it's they're not unique to the Raptors. And I trust that there, there's a level of creativity and experimentation there as they build out the roster for next year, That uh, which, again, we're going to talk about in the, the next episode, what, what happens next roster-wise. Um, but yeah, those are the two big ones for me. Half-court offense and, and how do you turn... You know, they played 12 guys this year, 440 minutes or more. They basically had 12 guys that they would rely on, 
and seven of their top eight missed significant time, and they were the second best team in the league. And how does that? So why does that not translate into playoff depth? And sorry, I'll, I'll take us back now to what got us on this, which was the idea of Siakam getting benched like DeMar DeRozan did at times during the playoff runs. Well, the big thing is, is that um, defensively, he was still bringing it. And offensively, the Celtics were still paying him a lot of attention. Uh, but the the other one is, who do you play if yeah. you only trust seven guys and Gasol and Siakam and Powell and Van Vliet are all struggling? Like, you can't, you can't not play any of them. <laughs> Yeah, no, I thought he should have been on the floor. I I understand. Like, he was almost bad enough offensively to... Uh, game, the, game five was the game where I thought you probably could have parked him. That was the yeah. one where he picked up a couple frustration fouls and ended up taking an early sit. Yeah. But the game was already out of hand. Yeah, I, I just don't think there were useful options. I, you know, if, Nor- if Norm came out for Ibaka, I would have understood it. Um, I, I don't... I don't. Even, I wasn't even thinking that way, to be honest, while it was happening. But in a series where you're having struggle, you're struggling scoring, and and in a time of the game where you're struggling scoring, you know, the guy who's shot the ball the best is an obvious candidate to go in. Uh, but I understand that that would have definitely jeopardized the defense, and the you know, I, I think from the beginning. One of the first questions I or he was asked when upon the restart, Nick Nurse, he pronounced pal, um, was how do you see this team and, and how do you, you know, what's the roadmap back to a championship? And he said, well, we can play, and a few people have said this, we can play defense long enough to give ourselves a chance. Uh, and he prioritized defense by going small. Uh, I think that was, on balance, the correct move. And they just couldn't create anything. And, like, you know, if you were to predict a way, they were going to lose, uh, you know, this series specifically, but any series based on the regular season, that was it. Like, teams would, you know, prioritize getting back on, uh, on defense and shutting down transition, and they would have to producing the half court and this team just wasn't well equipped to do so and when you put Siakam into a you know nightmare situation and you know let's whether you want to call it a slump or performance or whatever when he's in that they're going to struggle to score in the half court and that's what played out so I think like he probably should have found a way to get Ibaka a few more minutes I don't have a lot of great ideas for what how what that way was so it's you know not a really useful thought, um, but I, I don't think he had like a, a terrible game. I, I think it's hard for me to separate the roster issues and the uh, coaching issues in this game. Yeah, and like to your point about coming into the restart and coming into the playoffs, that this kind of stuff was like how this would play out was predictable. I don't want to do the whole Barry Horowitz here and pat myself on the back too much, but I went back and looked at some of our season preview content, and basically the way that we set the season up was they're going to be a top five defense, they'll probably struggle to be an average offense, and 
my prediction was they would lose to the Celtics in the second round. So uh, in the 2-3 matchup, although part of my thinking with that was that the Raptors would be the three seed and Boston would have home court advantage. Also, full disclosure, if I knew Gordon Hayward would be hurt, I would not have picked the, as I did, I picked the Raptors in seven. Um, but no, like the, the oh, roster hold construction. Hold on, while we're Horowitzing, I called Celtics in seven. Let's go on. Well, yeah, but that's just because you're negative. That's That wasn't a... That wasn't an analytical pick. Don't tell a, me why I predicted what I predicted. I Did I get it right or did I get it right? You got it right. Thank you. What are we giving Jay King for picking in seven and a half games? Like no. he got the t- he got the two double overtimes, though. It was like seven and a quarter games. Nah, he's a coward. Call yeah. like call it. Call it. Yeah. Like and you know, I had to I had to I had to call it against the team I cover, risking alienating my fan base. That's what you call courage and guts. Um, As I admitted in the comments to a Celtic fan who said, who thanked me for the coverage in the series and said that I lean Raptors, but not to the extent of homerism, I responded that I know where my bread is buttered. So when you get get to a 50-50 series or a 50-50 situation... You know, you yeah. gotta you gotta pop the crowd a little bit. <laughs> uh, I'm a worker. Yeah, Come on. no, I I general I understand, and like, <laughs> I mean, Hayward wasn't playing. There were there yeah. were. It was a look. How do we view this series? Like, when you want to get down to it, is there were five super close games. The Raptors won three of them. If the Raptors. You know, I, I don't like this term, but if the Raptors show up for one of the other two games in which they got the crap kicked out of them, and look, there's a reason they didn't show up. Like, I, I don't think it's just as simple as that. Like, you know, it's it's one team play, doing things that is keeping the other team from doing what it wants to. But they couldn't, it's hard to, Fred Van Vliet said it after game one. Like, he literally said it. He said, it's going to be hard to survive another game like that. Um, yep. And he was right. They couldn't. They still won, you know, three of the five coin flip games, although game four, you know, the Raptors were pretty clearly the better team in that one, so maybe we don't call that a coin flip game. But they they won their share of the coin flip games, more than their share, and they lost the series because they got blown out twice. So yeah. it's, you know, the math is pretty easy on this one. So uh, I think the other big thing to talk about coming out of this series is something we should save for the next podcast. Uh, Marcus on Serge Ibaka was a debate throughout the series. Uh, it had been a debate that you wrote about a little bit uh, during the hiatus because both of those players are unrestricted free agents. They're both in kind of the back half of what you'd expect their aging curve or development curve, whatever you want to call it to look like. Um, one of them looked better in this series than the other one. The Raptors will have to make a decision on those two, so I would like to save the Ibaka-Gasol conversation for the next podcast, uh, and we can color it with this series, obviously, but we're like 45 minutes in right now, so yeah, and uh, I, I would like to give that the space it deserves next episode. And the series generally flew in the face of what I have believed, so I need to digest yes. it a bit more, I think. <laughs> yes. Um, the other... We'll talk about Fred Van Vliet a lot next episode, too, because he, too, is an unrestricted free agent. He had a rough series. Um, You know, some of that was emblematic of the half-court issues, but also some of it was maybe the symptom of the half-court. Like, 
Like, Van Vliet's field goal percentage has always been a little depressed by the fact that he gets all of these, like, like he consistently near the league lead in late shot clock attempts, which are harder to hit. But that's also, you know, it's a bit of a chicken or the egg thing. Are you getting these late shot clock attempts because Van Vliet is your lead initiator? Or is he getting late shot clock attempts because he's the only one they trust to get the to get a shot off in that spot? Um, Lowry still has one year left on his deal, so so you know, in terms of how you execute offensively, there are still lots of ways to get the most out of Van Vliet, and he was terrific defensively. So we'll talk a bit about Van Vliet and the center's next episode. We will end today uh, with what has been a fairly regular occurrence on this podcast over the years. Uh, I think we can we can just do a little Kyle Lowry appreciation here, Eric? We should. I mean, that guy... You know, Sean Fitzgerald wrote about building the statue. Game three and game six from Lowry. The whole series, because he's, you know, the the reason, the extent to which they were in five of those seven games and won three of them, like, the biggest reason is just Lowry. And I know that it was an important series for him from the perspective, not not for him personally, but for his reputation, let's say, because it proved that he could do it without another guy. Uh, like, he was clearly <laughs> the guy on this team, and, you know, 1A didn't perform, so he was 1, and then there was no 1A. Uh, and he was just magnificent, and... His defense on Tatum was pretty damn good. Um, you know, a lot of Tatum... I mean, Tatum, we, we talked enough about him. He, he was really good. and I, But I don't think that's on Lowry or anything, who, let's remind everybody, he's given up eight inches to <laughs> Jason Tatum. Um, the way... Like, more than anything, I'll remember some of his drives in this series. Just when nobody else could get into the paint, he just used his body. I don't want to say just put his head down, but, you know, he used his body, he used his butt, he used his shoulder to get in there, you know, bump off Daniel Tyson's side or something, and get a layup when the Raptors needed one. And he did that countless times, and, you know, his value's beyond that, obviously, but I think that's what a lot of people were looking for who don't watch Lowry game in and game out and season in and season out was to see him keep a team afloat with his scoring and his offense. And more than any other series, I think, like I, I, I would probably take his Miami series overall over this one. But this one was against a better opponent, I think. And this one was a 34-year-old Lowry. And he was sensational. And... And, you know, I'm really happy. I, I don't know. I think he cares a bit, and I'm really happy for him because uh, to use a phrase that everybody's used, he deserves them flowers. Yeah. So I think what maybe stands out most to me about the Actually, the thing that's going to stick with me probably the longest from this series is how sincerely and genuinely after Game 7, Lowry spoke about, like, transitioning into a leadership role for these young guys like Fred and Pascal and OG. And it just, like, for a guy who's been, you know, and, and for a guy who's been 
with intention, a little prickly outward facing over the years. Um, I think Lowry gets a kick out of it and gets a kick out of it being part of his brand still. Uh, And I read that quote earlier, like he clearly hasn't forgot that people wrote him off, you know, five, six years ago. But for him to, you know, he's 34 years old. Some guys at that stage transition into, I'm just going to, you know, try to get a ring or, or, you know, maybe I'll I'll take a lesser deal. Obviously, Lowry still has uh, a contract, so he didn't have that option. But, um, you know, for him at this stage. Well, he did. He signed a contract yeah. before the year started. Yeah, because uh, there was $30 million attached to it. Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> yes, he agitated for the contract, yeah. let's say. Yeah, but look, what, what I'm trying to say is like, the level of appreciation that he seemed to have for this stage of his career where he transitions into, obviously, he's still very good. He was still a top 20 player this year. He was, you know, fifth. as At the end of the series, he was fifth in um, wins added via player impact plus minus. So, like, still driving the team success. But I really, I think that's what's going to stick with me is, like, like we've always heard for, for a long time that Lowry is while prickly, quietly, like, a very good teammate, like, paying for dinners on the road and um, taking the young guys to hot Pilates when the, if they're here in the summer and stuff like that. Like, these things that, for whatever reason... Like, I, I remember one time Kyle Lowry made the Raptors social media people put their camera away when he was helping Pascal Siakam with something on his three-point shot. Like, for whatever reason, Lowry has just seemed to not want people to know that he's a good teammate and a good leader, um, at least publicly. It's seemed that way anyway it was cool to see him like feel like appear genuinely touched about this experience of this season um the other thing is for him to be able to so much of Lowry's value over the seven-year run has come not only in obviously his maniacal competitiveness and how he's the smartest player on the floor at all times but his ability to shapeshift his role around the pieces around him where, you know, in 2014 through and 2015, maybe he was a bit more of a scorer and the Raptors offense was a, a little split with him and DeRozan. And then eventually, you know, 2016, DeRozan really didn't have it. And in that Miami series, Lowry's putting up 30-35 uh, because that's what the team needed. And then you go ahead to 2017 and 2018 and it was, well, maybe... DeMar needs to run more of the offense like as a de facto point guard because he does have such little value off the ball and his three-point shot's not coming along. So Lowry shifts into more of an off-ball role then. And then Kawhi comes and Lowry shifts into almost a tertiary role because Siakam is coming up. And then this year, you know, Siakam's got the reins and Lowry's in a screener role in clutch situations most of the time and doesn't have the ball in his hands as much late. And he's fine with that. And then when they need him in this series, he can just snap and be back in, hey, I'm going to I'm gonna be the guy that that gets us a bucket when we need it most mode. To the, to the extent that, like, I was pretty frustrated in game six and seven that the late game offense wasn't running through Lowry because he was such an order of magnitude more effective than anyone else on the floor, even as his three-point shot wasn't there. So uh, all of this is to say... Lowry as a leader and Lowry as someone who is who has proven to be this incredible piece to build around because he is so malleable, um, both in terms of accepting different roles and responsibilities and like talent wise, he can play a few different roles. It's been pretty remarkable. One last thing. Um, I just Lowry. I just want to cut in there quickly. You were talking about how he sort of doesn't like to be seen on camera as being a teammate. 
uh, a, a, like a great teammate, and uh, Sam Amick, who was in the bubble, wrote something about you know first meeting Lowry when he was at uh, the wedding of Kevin Martin, um, and. Amick writes, I was surprised to see Lowry at the wedding, though, as there had been rumblings that he'd been particularly hard on Martin at times during the previous season. Hmm. Lowry's presence at the wedding said something about his ability to create bonds with teammates despite his tough love approach. And uh, yeah, I mean, obviously he's gotten better at it. And as he's been put in that role more often, he's, uh, you know, experience makes you better generally. Uh, But you know, it's always something, I mean, based on this one anecdote, uh, it's something he's been building toward for sure. One last Lowry stat. Uh, anyone who reads the written side of The Athletic, which again, $1.25 a month right now, if you click on one of our articles, um, knows that I have this like gargantuan Lowry on-off chart that I've maintained over the years that shows just how much uh, he lifts the net rating and true shooting percentages of his teammates over the year. I want to to kind of wrap that up. This comes from Daryl Blackport, who runs PVP Stats, which is a site I lean on heavily. Over the last seven seasons in the playoffs, so going back to that 2014 net series, when Lowry is on the floor for the Raptors, they outscore opponents by 2.2 points per 100 possessions. That's much smaller than their in-season net rating, but you're talking about playoff series. The margins are slimmer. They are outscoring teams by about two points a game in the minutes Lowry's on the floor. When Lowry is off the floor, the Raptors have been outscored by 11.8 points per 100 possessions over the last seven years. Uh, so... That's a 14 point per 100 possession swing over a seven playoff sample. And I think there's only one postseason in that run where he wasn't, where he didn't have uh, a positive on off. And I think it was last year. And that was because him and Kawhi were staggered. And um, some of those units, those Lowry and bench units were. What did you say the time eight, frame was for that? Seven years. It might have been 2015. The oh, yeah. One. <laughs> Yeah, just just guessing. Yeah, that was not a. Although everyone was super negative that year. Yeah, that so. was the one. Uh, I mean, I, I mentioned this on Twitter, and I know we got to wrap up, but like yeah. he read everything that that year. He says, um, yeah. as opposed to all the other times when he, of course, doesn't read our work. Um, and no, even that one. I just looked it up. Um, uh, they were minus nine point nine with him on, and minus twenty three point four with him off oh. in that series. <laughs> Anyway, he uh, that was the year he was sort of out of shape and had uh, had foul troubles, you know, that were linked to that. And then Skinny Kyle was born to fo- in, in the offseason that followed. So uh, when you're thinking about Siakam's, you know, Lowry's advice to Siakam, like that's not that Pascal Siakam needs to get skinnier, certainly. Um, but, you know, he that was when he really figured out how to transform himself in terms of his physical status, uh, his physical shape. And that's something that will play heavily into how Siakam grows, obviously. But uh, yeah, uh, to circle it back to Siakam a little bit, Kyle Lowry uh, is good and has figured out how to improve himself. To circle back to Pascal Siakam, Kyle Lowry is good. All right. That about wraps up the last seven years of the Raptors. Um, Whatever conversation we're having, it all circles back to Kyle Lowry being good. Uh, We got to wrap up. We will be back again 
uh, this week to tee up the offseason. Uh, the podcast cadence is probably going to change because we're entering our second long period of uh, no Raptors basketball, and we don't know when the season will be back yet. But there's lots to talk about. Uh, I think we can, you know, during the pandemic, we had to fill some time with some backward-looking stuff or some fun side stuff, and we just didn't know enough to look ahead to the offseason yet. Uh, now we can do that. The Raptors have some tough decisions to make. We can make some cap assumptions. We could take a look around uh, the draft and the free agent class and, and things like that. Uh, so stick with us. We'll be back again this week to kind of tee up the bigger decisions the Raptors are facing. And then throughout the course of the offseason, uh, touching on free agency, draft, uh, whatever. Maybe we'll do some mailbags. We'll be around. So stick with us. And again, the athletic.com slash we the six for 40% off a subscription. That'll hold pretty much always. Uh, but right now, if you click any of our articles, there should be a flash sale pop up offering you $1.25 Canadian per month subscription. So get on that. Thank you so much for listening along all year, guys. Uh, it was a really fun one, despite it being the weirdest season in the history of the world uh, and a very strange time. So we appreciate you sticking with us and listening. Uh, and Eric, I appreciate you, man. It was a fun year, fun year working together. I, uh, you know, this is, uh, I want to make a Lowry comparison, but I'm not going to. All right. Well, it's good to work with you too, Blake. Uh, and... I'll echo what you said about about the people. Uh, we do appreciate it, and we couldn't do it if you guys didn't care. So uh... thousands <laughs> and thousands <laughs> of Raptors reasonableists out there. All right, thanks so much, guys. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. See ya.